Welcome to the Together for Good podcast, a podcast specifically designed to inspire, challenge, and uplift you during your daily walk of faith. Today's episode is a Bible study from John chapter 12, verses 1 through 8. This Bible study is a continuation of a series that we're doing on stories of Bethany. We're taking time to look at different Bible stories that happened in the town of Bethany, this small little village outside of Jerusalem, where some really important and meaningful stuff took place. We're doing this because, as you know, this podcast is brought to you by Bethany Lutheran Church. And so we're looking at some of these stories and asking the question of, what does it mean to be a church that's named after this specific location? Even if you're not a member of Bethany, but you just happen to find the podcast, I think there's still a lot in these stories that you'll enjoy and appreciate. More than anything else, these are intense Bible studies that are just looking at specific Bethany-related stories. So I hope you enjoy it, regardless of if you're a Bethany member or not. As always, thanks so much for listening, for your continued support of the podcast, for continuing to share it with family and friends. We love to see uh, the ways that our audience is growing. But now let's get right into it. A Bible study based on John chapter 12. This is the story of Mary anointing Jesus's feet. And as you'll see, it's really a continuation of that story we looked at last week, the raising of Lazarus in John 11. Here we go, a Bible study for you. Okay, we are back with another Bible study on a story about Bethany. Bethany, this small town just outside of Jerusalem, where a lot of really interesting things took place during Jesus's ministry here on earth. Last week, I recorded a Bible study like this for you about the raising of Lazarus, and I wanted to just kind of continue the story. I should have ended last week by saying to be continued, because the very next story that John tells in his gospel is about something else that happens at Bethany right after the fact. So this is John chapter 12, verses 1 through 8. And what I want to start with, we're going to hop right into it. It's a short little section, but there's a lot in here, as is always the case with John's gospel. So just let's look right away, because this is going to give me the opportunity to give you all this background information. Um, So let's look right away at John chapter 12, verse 1. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, the home of Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So this is a continuation, like I said, of what happened just before this. In John chapter 11, we get a lot of information about Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. He revives Lazarus. And what's interesting about that whole story is after he's raised Lazarus from the dead, we also hear about the reactions of the people. In uh, in John chapter 11, verse 45, what it says is that Jesus's actions, um, they saw what Jesus did and they believed in him. But then we also read after the fact that other people, Pharisees, etc., chief priests, had a meeting saying like, what are we supposed to do? This man who's performing all these signs. And so they then start to plan for Jesus's death. 
because they want to make sure uh, that that this is stopped. You know, they're they're completely unnerved by the fact that this man was able to raise someone from the dead, and so they need to now start making plans for it. So this is all the reaction. Jesus went to Bethany, raised Lazarus from the dead, and some people believed, but now some people are plotting to kill him. And as we talked about last week in the Bible study, Jesus kind of knew that his actions at Bethany, raising Lazarus, were going to then really be a turning point in his ministry, that this was going to be the first start of him uh, moving towards his death and crucifixion. He kind of knew all that was coming. So anyways, we start chapter 12 by, you know, once again, setting the scene is that Passover's on the way and Jesus went to Bethany and he went to the home of Lazarus, who, as we know, is the brother of Mary and Martha. We learned all that last week as we looked at chapter 11. And um, they even give us that little reminder, like, oh yeah, Lazarus, who he raised from the dead. Again, just putting it all in the context, kind of linking chapter 11 to chapter 12 and all that's going to take place. So now here we are at Bethany, at the home of Lazarus, and things are starting to turn. The turning point has taken place and Jesus is now very conscious of the fact that he is marching towards his death. And we've also learned that all the mechanisms are in place to start down that path. Chief priests are turning against him, etc. So then we read in 12, uh, verse 2. There they gave a meal for a dinner for him. Martha served and Lazarus was one of those at the table with him. So he's at the home, Mary and Martha's home. And what's interesting is that once again, Mary and Martha are you know, um, portrayed in this way. We'll, we'll read that Mary has this real devotional act that she's going to take, that's going to take place, and Martha is the one serving. Those two um, images really pull through it throughout John's gospel. But what's also interesting about this verse is that there's only two times in John's gospel where that word dinner is used. Here in verse 2 is one of them, And then a chapter later in John chapter 13, we'll once again see that word dinner pop up when Jesus is having the last supper with his disciples. And so it's very clear. One of the things we need to remember about the way John's gospel is written is that John's gospel is written well after the fact and that John was very careful in the design of how he set up all the scenes. John's gospel is not usually a chronological gospel. Um, In fact, John was writing in such a way to, to really hammer home some points about who Jesus was and the significance of certain actions that had taken place. And so it's much more John, you know, writing this biography about Jesus, but in a way so that certain themes will be drawn out. And so that's exactly what's happening here is John is helping us see some parallels between what happened during this meal at Lazarus's house in Bethany and then what will happen later at the Last Supper. We're supposed to kind of read these two stories side by side and to recognize some themes and draw out some themes in the ways that these two passages parallel one another. And again, we know that because John uses this word dinner only two times. Something special happens at dinner. There's first this dinner and then there's the Last Supper. And we're supposed to kind of read those two passages, those two stories in tandem to draw out the deeper themes that John wants us to discover. So then we move on. What happens at this dinner? Verse three, Mary took a pound of costly perfume made of pure nard, anointed Jesus's feet and wiped them with her hair. 
the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. If you've ever uh, dropped a bottle of perfume on the ground, you know how pervasive that smell can be. And keep in mind that usually a bottle of perfume is only a few ounces. Mary drops a pound of perfume. The smell would have been absolutely overwhelming, bordering on oppressive, I would think, because it's not like they lived in big houses back then. And a pound of perfume is just so an incredible amount. So much of this story is about extravagance. And so that is really hammered home by the fact that it is a pound, not just a few ounces, a pound of perfume. The other thing is that normally when you anoint someone, you would anoint their head first. So many stories are about anointing one's head with oil. But Mary starts at the feet, which is indicative of an anointing for burial. When you anoint someone's feet, that's usually if you went to the body after it had passed, after it had been dead for a while, you would anoint the feet. And in fact, in John's gospel, when they talk about the resurrection, Mary goes to the tomb in order to anoint Jesus. So it's like a second time that she does this. She, she goes to the tomb to anoint the body as part of the process of grieving uh, that individuals would go through in order to honor um, a person who had passed away. And when you would go to anoint a body after it had been dead, you would start at the feet. And so there's that little parallel. Mary is clearly understanding or recognizing that something has changed. It's hard to know and scholars kind of disagree on whether Mary fully understood what was happening, but it seems that she ha has seen the sequence of events and realize that Jesus is in trouble. And, and that's part of why she, she goes through this incredible act of devotion and why she anoints Jesus' feet. Remember, this, her brother Lazarus was the one who was raised from the dead. And so she likely saw and understood the way that the tides were shifting against Jesus now because of the actions that he had, that he had done, the way that he had raised Lazarus. And so her now coming at this dinner... Um, to anoint his feet is her recognizing that Jesus has done something incredible for her family, something amazing that he means so much to their family. But it's also her recognizing that Jesus's days are numbered. She anoints his feet. Additionally, this detail about wiping Jesus's feet with her hair, that was not an ordinary action. Just as it doesn't read like an ordinary action in today's world, in those days also, it's not like that was common whatsoever. In fact, a woman's hair was um, usually meant to be pulled up and was very sacred. Um, and so it's, it's further showing her incredible act of devotion. Again, extravagance is the word of the day here. The extravagance of the perfume, but the extravagance of her action of anointing his feet and wiping them with her hair. Um, she is showing everyone in the room at that time just how much she loves and appreciates her teacher, uh, what he means to her, and how deeply she values him in that relationship. No one in the room would have <laughs> uh, understood Mary's action as anything other than deep, incredible love and devotion. Well, actually, I shouldn't say no one, because let's read what happens in verse 4. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, the one who was about to betray him, said, Why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and the money given to the poor? Okay, so Judas somehow 
misinterprets the action. <laughs> Judas is so focused on what's the right thing to do here. Um, but obviously he, and as we'll read, he has probably ulterior motives, but he's so hyper-focused on the, on the discipline of it all. This seems too extravagant. You know, he, he's totally missing the love that underlies this. And it's, it's just galling, the fact that he is somehow misinterpreting this situation. Mary is trying to just show her incredible gratitude, um, her incredible love and appreciation. This man raised her brother from the dead. Um, this man was already a great teacher and someone that she deeply valued. And she's trying to show her appreciation. And somehow, you know, Judas is turning this into be like, no, but you can't, like, don't appreciate him. Why are you grateful? This should have been done the right way. And this is a common theme in John's gospel. Jesus is constantly bickering with the chief priests and the Pharisees and the Sadducees because they're, well, the Pharisees in, in particular tend to be so focused on the rules. What's the right way to do things? You know, this is the letter of the law and the way that we must express our devotion to God. And if you do it wrong, then you're completely sinful. And Jesus is constantly trying to rewrite that narrative. It's not about just doing the rules, but it's about the love that underlies it. Even if you don't, you know, totally fit the mold of the perfect disciple who follows all the letters of the law, there's grace in that. And, and what really Jesus and what God cares about most is your heart. What's the position of your heart? Yeah, so you've made some mistakes. So, so you're a Pharisee or a tax collector or a prostitute. So you're an outcast or a leper or you're poor. That's not what Jesus is focused on about some you know, rule that says you're ritually unclean. Jesus is more concerned about what is the attitude of your heart? Where do you place your devotion? It's very clear. Mary's devotion and heart are in the absolute right place. And Judas is the one who's completely focused on what the right way, the letter of the law is. Just another note, 300 denarii is a lot of money. Judas is right on that account. In today's, what it says is that a manual laborer probably would have made about 300 denarii in a year. So again, a pound of perfume, it's an extravagant gift. I can't underlie that enough. Let's move on to verse 6. Judas said this, not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief, and he kept the common purse and used to steal what was put into it. So we see that even though he's, you know, thinking about the right way, quote-unquote, to do things, his heart is in the wrong place. And this is the real dichotomy that John is trying to draw out here. Mary is being portrayed as the devout, true disciple whereas Judas is being portrayed as the thief. Earlier in John's gospel, we learned that the devil is in Judas, um, and here he's portrayed as someone who just doesn't get it. Even though he's followed Jesus around, his heart is in the wrong place, and as we know, he will be the one who betrays Jesus later. So there's this stark contrast between Judas and Mary. Another point that I should make, we talked about the parallels between the Last Supper and this dinner that Jesus is having in Bethany. Well, at the Last Supper, remember, Jesus is going to wash the disciples' feet. And he says, you know, if you are my disciple, you will do this for one another. And so Mary is again being portrayed as the true disciple. She gets all this stuff. She knows what true devotion and love is, even before the disciples do. 
And so that's, it's really um, powerful too when you think about the fact of that when this was written, the society was extremely patriarchal. So for John to draw out Mary as the true disciple, the one who gets it, that would have been scandalous, but also just so important that it's not about what society says your gender, you know, the status your gender might give you. With Jesus, it's always about the position of your heart. What do you truly care about? How do you express that care and that devotion, that extravagant love that you have for God? That's what matters. Um, it, it's just really powerful. Yeah, Judas, who was, you know, was probably from a decent Jewish family, um, just based on his name, and yet he is the thief and the betrayer. And Mary, this woman from humble means, is the true disciple who actually gets it. Okay, now we work at, look at verse 7. Jesus said to Judas, leave her alone. She bought it so that she might keep it for the day of my burial. Jesus recognizes the significance of these actions. And, and again, maybe Mary doesn't fully grasp just what her actions um, entail. You know, she, she knows like things are turning against Jesus. She's anointing his feet out of an act of pure love and devotion, but Jesus is also seeing how all these pieces are fitting together. He understands that he is on the path towards his crucifixion. And so Jesus is on this path of incredible love and devotion for the sake of the world. And he understands, you know, how his mission needs to continue. And he's saying to to Judas as well, like, who are you to really judge? It's funny, though, that he doesn't really offer a harsh rebuke of Judas, um, as we might see in other places in the gospel where Jesus will harshly rebuke the scribes or the Pharisees. Um, It's just more almost contemplative, right? Like that Jesus himself is caught up in the moment. And you can picture it when you think about all this, is that there's, you know, this smell in the air that's permeating the entire house, that's taking it over. And Jesus is recognizing Mary's actions and how they fit within the broader picture of what's about to happen to him. And so he just kind of offers, he's like, you know, let her go. Judas, leave it alone. You know, she can do what she wants. Um, he's, he's affirming of Mary's actions. And, and as we'll hear again later in the next chapter at the Last Supper, Jesus further affirms Mary's actions, kind of drawing her up as a true disciple with this act of extravagant love. Because again, that's the point. Discipleship, extravagant love, not, not rigid discipline and following the letter of the law. That's always Jesus's point. Furthermore, um, yeah, Jesus suggests that Mary's keeping the perfume in her possession and using it on him now has consequently achieved a greater, more meaningful purpose than she even maybe perhaps intended. It, it's all drawing together the nearness of Jesus's death, preparing him for burial. And then we get this funny last verse. This is always one that troubles people. Jesus says, you always have the poor with you, but but you do not always have me. We don't need to think of this as Jesus somehow undermining um, our mission for caring for the poor and the outcast. But in fact, what Jesus is doing here is he's kind of quoting Deuteronomy 15 verse 11. In Deuteronomy 15, 11, it says, Since there will never cease to be some in need on earth, I therefore command you, open your hand to the poor and needy neighbor in your land. Jesus understands the poor will always be there. 
Um, but really more than anything else, he, he's again drawing out, it's not about the rules, you know, like sometimes you do need this extravagant love and devotion. And, and even more to the point, as we think about John, who wrote this gospel down in such a way, you know, who told these stories in a specific way, John is the one who would also know that at that time, you know, Christian communities were deeply committed to service, but they also needed to balance that out with time of devotion and worship to God. You have to be filled up in order to be poured out. And that's so much the the rhythm of Christian discipleship. There needs to be time of service to others, as well as time of devotion to God, where we can be refueled in order to serve. If you just serve constantly, you'll get burned out. The Mary and Martha story that we know and love, where Martha is always working and Mary's just listening at the disciple at Jesus' feet. That's also this whole thing. You you need both. <laughs> you, you need the time of being in the teacher's presence. That's often how Mary and Martha are portrayed in John's gospel. Making that point is we need both. We can't just be constantly serving and burning ourselves out. You've got to balance it. Again, there's the further allusion to what happens in John chapter 13 when Jesus has the Last Supper. Jesus' last dinner with his disciples is also where he gives the greatest commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You need both. You have to have devotion and love for God in order to love your neighbor as yourself. You you can't have one without the other. And so it's very much this balancing act that John is trying to help the early Christians understand. Um, I think we need to understand that as well, too, is that we can be so focused on service or programs or whatever else. There's also just time where we need retreat where we need to recharge, where we need to turn our hearts back towards God in order to discern the next step, in, in order to be filled up and fueled for the work that God is calling us to. Um, additionally, though, with this statement, you will always have the poor with you, but you won't always have me. Jesus is, again, as we know, very aware of his impending death. And so he, he's just saying everything has a time and a place. Um, and frankly, he, he knows like you, that after he dies, the mission is going to need to continue. You're going to need to continue serving the poor after I have left you. That, that's not, it's all part of it. Is he wants the service to the poor to continue, um, but he recognizes, and, and he's kind of saying that by, by acknowledging the fact that he is leaving. They will always be with you, but I will not always be with you. Your service to the poor must continue even after I have left this earth. That's sort of the unspoken statement of Jesus's words there in verse 8. Okay. There's so much in there. John's gospel is so amazing because of all the ways that things tie together. It's just the way that he wrote it um, allows us to make so many connections and draw out these bigger themes. But I want to um, end this by talking about what this means for Bethany. Because again, we're studying this story simply because it is a story about the town of Bethany, something that took place there. And so what does it mean for us to be a church named Bethany Lutheran Church? Well, Bethany, we learned through this passage, is a place where Jesus teaches us to balance our service to others with our devotion to God. Bethany needs to be a place, we need to be a church and a community committed to the fact that we not only serve our neighbor, but we also take time to fuel ourselves up, to be guided by God in order to make the next faithful step forward. We also learn 
that Bethany is a place where love is extravagant. And that should be our focus, like Mary. We shouldn't concern ourselves with rules just for the sake of rules, but we should constantly be looking for extravagant love and expressions of extravagant love for God and for our neighbors. Um, we should be constantly trying to find ways to express our devotion in extravagant generosity, extravagant extravagant ways. I think we do that already with just how wonderful our worship gatherings are. We There's an extravagance to worship at Bethany that really seems to link towards the extravagance of Mary's devotion to Jesus on this day at this dinner at Bethany. And then I kind of said this already, but Bethany needs to be a place of true discipleship, discipleship like Mary, where we're, we overcome senseless and rigid discipline. Judas is trying to insist on senseless, rigid discipline just for discipline's sake. Uh, and he misses the act of extravagant love in there. We need to be open to the fact that there are ways to follow Jesus that um, maybe don't look like what we expected, but that, you know, what's at the heart of it. And really that's kind of the culminating piece to this is that Bethany is a place where the position of your heart is what's most important. That's what we focus on. What, what is the heart of people's actions and words and commitments? Can we be a place that views one another and, and sees each other for where our heart is at? Maybe even if we disagree on certain issues or actions, um, certain stances, can we meet one another on a heart level where we see and acknowledge, yeah, you know, I might do it a different way, but I see where your heart is at and I affirm that. All right, friends, what a great passage and so fun to be looking at these stories of Bethany. There will be more to come in future weeks. I, I hope this was interesting um, and illuminating for you, gave you some things to think about and, and gives us some things to think about and some direction moving forward as Bethany Lutheran Church. What does it mean to be a place where these actions and stories of Jesus took place and continue to take place? I'm Pastor Nate. Thanks so much for listening and for your time. Stay in peace, everyone.